So um, Netflix, uh, they're going to be getting rid of some like amazing shows, and I'm kind of upset about that. Uh, namely, Friends and The Office. There's probably other shows too. So I've been uh, actually watching a lot of Office, and it's so funny. Like my my nightly routines have been just like sitting on the couch. And just like giggling, <laughs> like as I'm watching Office the entire time. And if you don't know what the Office is, um, you know it's it's a mockumentary type of sitcom, probably one of the greatest sitcoms ever. And uh, the Office is a show that follows this day-to-day life and operations of this paper company based out of Scranton, Pennsylvania, right? And um, I was watching this one particular episode, which is so good. Um, there's this character named Dwight, Dwight Schrute. And he is a loyal employee in sales, right? And there's this one episode where Dwight tries to stage a coup against uh, Michael. Um, you know, he, for some reason, decides to be rebellious and he wants to uh, overthrow Michael as the regional manager. And this all came about because Angela, uh, who is an employee of uh, accounting, um, she had this thing with Dwight, right? And she pretty much convinces Dwight to take over the branch because Michael was being incompetent, right? So uh, Dwight, he thinks about it and he pretty much decides, yeah, I'm going to betray Michael. I'm going to be the next regional manager of Dunder Mifflin Scranton, right? So he leverages, this is what Dwight does, he leverages this strained relationship between Michael and his superior, Jan, Jan Levinson, right? And uh, who is, who's from corporate, and the awkward thing about this was Jan and Michael, they also had a fling, uh, which didn't end too well. And Dwight just used that to his advantage to feel his cause, right? Uh, because the common enemy was Michael. So he goes behind Michael's back, he meets with Jan, and he deliberately betrays Michael. He says pretty much to, to Jan, um, I should be the one running your organization, right? So after that, <laughs> and I don't know if you're like remembering this episode, but after that, Jan ends up calling Michael, and she pretty much lets him know like about Dwight's betrayal, what Dwight has mentioned uh, to her, and she pretty much pushed Michael to regain control of the branch. So after all this happened, right, Dwight is back at the office. Michael confronts Dwight in a really passive-aggressive manner, right? Do you guys remember, like, if you've seen this episode, like, Dwight comes in all like normal, like nonchalantly, and then Michael just has like a bag of M&Ms, and he was just like, you want some of M&Ms? <laughs> Dwight's like, sure, right? But the thing behind that was um, Dwight actually gave an alibi um, to cover him meeting with Jen. The alibi was, I'm going to the dentist, right? So immediately, Dwight fails the test, right? He, he lied to Michael that he was gonna have a, you know, a crown, and pretty much he ends up eating like M&M's, right? <laughs> so Michael already knows like Dwight's like totally lying about this. And then he was like, so who is your dentist, Dwight? Right? And Dwight is Crentist. <laughs> he says Crentist. He just makes that name up out of nowhere. And long story short, what Michael does is this. He, he plays with the lie. He ultimately confronts Dwight. He says, I know you did it. Right? I know it. You did it, Dwight. And pretty much um, like he confronts him. And um, all of this happened after getting upset by how um, when Michael was pretending to hand over the reins to Dwight, Dwight dissed his convertible, right? Michael's convertible, the Sebring. And I guess Michael just lost it, right? So after confrontation, you know, after that, that moment where Michael exposes Dwight's betrayal, Dwight gets on his knees and he pleads, 
don't fire me. Literally, he's on all fours. He's like, don't fire me, right? There's like drool and snot coming out of his mouth. And he's saying like, I'll do anything, right? Anything, I'll do your laundry for a month. I'll do your laundry for a year, right? What can I do? And Michael says this. This is classic Michael Scott, right? He says, you can get up and you can hug it out, beep. <laughs> he cusses, right? It's an expletive that I will not say here. Um, and you know, like Dwight being all like crushed and exposed, right? He gets up and then he hugs and it's like a huge, warm, deep hug with Michael, right? The guy that he stabbed in the back and they embrace. But even though Michael forgave Dwight for betraying him, he still made him do laundry for a year, right? And he also made him do this. <laughs> You're just standing in the office with a sign that said liar, right? Now, um, today we're going to be talking about forgiveness. And you know, for Michael, um, Michael, if you think about it, um, he's definitely doesn't have the best character. <laughs> Um, he's definitely inappropriate, but um, there's something compassionate that we see from Michael, actually. And for him to be willing to just um, lay aside, you know, this betrayal, right, this breach of trust, um, and to be like, you know what, we can just hug it out and we're brothers. Um, as we talk about forgiveness, there's actually an amazing passage in the Old Testament that shows the nature of forgiveness and really what it's all about. And here's my thing. This is this is like my main thing for today. This is why like I'm preaching to you guys, right? The main subject that I want to talk about is forgiveness. And for us to really understand how we forgive one another, right? Like, let's say I hurt you, right? And I put you in a place where you have to forgive me. Um, before we understand this um, level of horizontal forgiveness, we have to understand this level of vertical forgiveness and how, of how God forgave us first um, because that's going to inform how we do our relationships with one another here. So um, the story that we're going to be talking about is the story of David and Bathsheba, right? This is um, a well-known story of this king, right? King David of Israel. And um, this is pretty much in 2 Samuel. We'll read the text here, but I just want to give you guys some brief background. <laughs> this is at a time where all the kings, they go to war. Um, they fight. And, but for some reason, uh, David is staying behind, right? David is not fighting with the kings, but rather he's on the roof. And what does he do on the roof? He sees this beautiful woman bathing, right? And he has one of two choices, really, to, to, to either look away or to pursue her. And guess what he does? He pursues her, right? So he sees Bathsheba, right, um, taking a bath, and he uses his power and authority to summon her. So, long story short, um, David and Bathsheba, they end up sleeping together, and he knocks her up, right? right? He gets her pregnant, and David realizes that not only is she married to another man, but her husband is this dude named Uriah, who's one of his mighty men. So, um, what this means is this, um, being a mighty man in the kingdom of Israel means you're pretty much like SEAL Team 6. You're the best of the best when it comes to, like, uh being a warrior and you know this guy was known to kill a lot of people right um now david what he wanted to do was to cover this up so he brings uriah back from war right because there's all this fighting taking place during this time and he tries to make uriah sleep with Bathsheba to cover up the pregnancy right 
But guess what happens? Um, Uriah, being so noble, right? Um, he doesn't want to sleep with her because even though, you know, um, she's his own wife. I said that right? She's, yeah, I, yeah she is the wife of Uriah. Um, even though, um, like, Uriah doesn't want to do that because he has a bad conscience uh, being with his wife when all of his soldiers are, soldiers are pretty much just dying on the field, right? So he ends up not sleeping with her, and he gets pushed back, put back into the battlefield, essentially. So at this point, when you realize uh, David, when David realizes that Uriah didn't, you know, sleep with um, his wife, he starts to freak out. And one bad decision, right, one bad sin leads to another. So guess what David does? He, he sends Uriah to the toughest part of the battlefield with the intention of having um, Uriah killed by the enemy. So obviously, you know, David wasn't the one who put a sword through Uriah, but David intentionally ordered his army to send Uriah into this place where he's not going to make it. After that, Bathsheba hears news of her husband's death, um, and David comforts, uh, comforts Bathsheba, and they have a kid. Right? Um, this is a kind of this is a crazy story, right? And I know we've we've heard the story many times, but um, this is really interesting because we have to remember that David is not like a normal like human being. He's the king, right? He's God's chosen, anointed king. And what he's doing right now, he's he's failing with like flying colors as a king. So what we're going to see uh, is God's response to this, right? Because uh, prior to the passage that we're about to read, uh, it was David, David, David. Now we're going to see God in, in motion. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn them to 2 Samuel chapter 12. <clears throat> we're going to be reading from uh, verse 1. And I'll read for us here. Um, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and he said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. Um, it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Verse 4, now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling, right, the rich man was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But, this is what he did, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Verse 5, and this is David's response to hearing the story. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives... The man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Right? Let's go on. This is verse 7. And it says this. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Right? Just as Michael confronted Dwight, like you betrayed me, Nathan is confronting David well, with, uh, about his sin. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. He's talking about Saul, the king before him. And gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. And so God says to David, why have you despised 
the word of the Lord, to do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, and this is um, God speaking, uh, the, sword, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before, the eye, before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Let's take a pause here. Now, um, as God is responding, he's using his prophet Nathan, right? And rather than addressing the story head on, like, hey, I know you did this. Um, Nathan tells a story and he traps him, right? So Nathan, he talks about the story where there's a, a rich man that had many animals, right? Um, and this poor man that had just one small lamb. Now, the lamb was so precious to this poor man that it says that he treated it like his own daughter, right? Um, I don't know if we have pets here, but this is kind of crazy for you to love your animal so much that you treat it as if it's your own kid. Now, the rich man was hosting a traveler from somewhere, um, but what's interesting about this was even though he was rich, even though he had many animals to choose from, he was unwilling to take an animal from his own flock to provide for food to the traveler, right? And this was something that they did in their, in their culture. So this guy, he, he went to, this rich guy went to the poor man's land. He killed it, and he used that for food to provide for the traveling guests. So David, he's hearing the story, and he's angry. He's upset, and he says this, As long as God lives, that man, that rich man, deserves to die, and the poor man shall um, be restored four times. And Nathan says, You are the man, right? You're the rich man in the story that I'm talking about. And God is speaking through Nathan, and, and, and he's saying this, look, God gave you everything. He, he made you king. He gave you riches. Um, he would have given you more if that wasn't enough. But David, you abused your power to sleep with a girl you, that you found attractive, right? You, you've taken advantage of people, and you, you abused your power again by murdering her husband and trying to cover your tracks. Now, what David did in the story is completely heinous and wicked. And God was bringing his sins to light. Now, let's finish off the passage and let's see how David responds. Verse 13. This is David's response, right, to the claims. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly sworn the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick, right? The child became sick. So David responds in this manner. He therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of the house stood beside him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. And then, next slide. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. 
how then can we say to him, the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. Verse 19, but when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. And then David arose from the earth, from the ground. He washed and anointed himself. He changed his clothes and he went into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. He then went to his own house and when he asked, um, they set food before him and he ate. And let's finish the passage. Then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? Like pretty much like, what are you doing? You, you fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. Like it was so simple. Verse 22, and this is how David responds. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife again, Bathsheba, and went into her and lay with her, and she bore another son, right? A son, and he called his name Solomon. And this is the most weirdest thing about this passage. And the Lord loved him, referring to Solomon. This is a very, very interesting story here. So if you look at it, we see David pretty much saying, like, I messed up, I sinned, right? He confesses his wrongdoings. He admits his sin, and God, for some reason, decides to put away David's sin, right? That's the language that the Bible is using. Um, we have to know that for David to commit the sin, he should have died, like, in the spot. But for some reason, God says, you know what? Like, I'm not going to kill you for the sin. But because you have scorned me, um, this child who will be born will die in your place. So this is what's happening right here. Um, we see confession, right? David is confessing his sins openly. And God, as a response, gives an assurance. I'm going to put away your sin. You're not going to die. But there's a substitute. Instead of you dying, someone else is going to die in your place. And the kid that was supposed to be born, was supposed to die, uh, was going to die in David's place. Now, David, as any other father like doesn't want his son to die so he's fasting right uh, he's hoping that God would be gracious and that he would probably keep the son alive but after some time David saw his servants talking right and he realizes that the child is dead right so he confirms and asks right and after they gave him his confirmation he just got up went to normal right he, he washed himself he changed his clothes uh, he went to worship God he ate food and his servants, they see that, and they're like, David, what are you doing? That's so, like, brash. Because you were, you were fasting, and all of a sudden the child dies, and you're just living as if, like, nothing happened. And David responds like this. <clears throat> and this teaches us, like, an interesting lesson. Um, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, thinking maybe God will be gracious to me and let the child live. But now the child is dead, so why should I continue to fast? I can't bring him back. No, there's nothing I can do to bring him back. But one day, I shall go to him, but he'll never return to me. And those are like heartbreaking words, right, from a father who just lost his own son. And, you know, David, after he, he goes back to normal, he, he gets up, he stops fasting, he, he washes himself, he changes his clothes, he eats, 
uh, he comforts his wife Bathsheba and they conceived another child right and this child be is Solomon who became the next king after David and it's so interesting because again it ends like this the Lord loved him if you're tracking with me there's this inconsistency because the first child right that was born um, the Lord despised the child but the second child that's born um, God changes and he says the Lord loved him um, what, what, what's going on here you know this is like really interesting and this is what I think all right this text that we just read is teaching us a lesson on forgiveness okay um, what we see here is this forgiveness is both marvelous and costly right the idea of forgiveness is amazing it's great it's beautiful yet it's ugly it's painful it's difficult it's both marvelous and costly and you know as a church we we celebrate the fact that we're gospel-centered right we're all about the gospel uh, you see it in our mission statement but i feel like it's really easy in this grace-centered thinking to take the to take the concept of sin and forgiveness so lightly right there's when there is an overemphasis on grace there tends to be um, an underemphasis on sin and forgiveness and I don't know about you, but <clears throat> for me personally, right? And um, you know, I'm a like, like I'm a pastor, right? Um, every time like I make too much of an emphasis on grace, when I sin, I treat it as it's not a big deal. We all sin anyways, right? It's just a normal part of our life. But if we look at the Bible, we see that sin has drastic consequences, right? Um, I lead life groups, right? I, I've led many life groups. This is like our small groups for our church. And pretty much, there's many times where I've been in a part of like life groups or other small groups outside of church. And you know, we kind of joke about sin. Like when we're sharing, like, oh, like I struggle with lust again. You know, like, oh, I did it again. You know, I watched porn again, right? And you know, <clears throat> I don't know about you guys. I don't know if you can relate with this, but there's been many times where I'm just like, um, we treat it like it's not a big deal because it happens so often and it's kind of lost um, the weight. Now, we look at this story, right? And we see not only is sin an extremely terrible thing, especially what David did, right? Which was completely heinous and immoral, but <clears throat> it's extremely hard and costly to forgive, Right? So let's think of it as this, um, from this perspective. Let's say you are God, right? And let's say someone stabs you in the back like that. And let's say someone hurts you like that, right? And I know, like, for a lot of us, we've had people pain or uh, give us pain, right? Um, for me personally, like, to be honest with you, I'm still working on forgiveness with certain individuals. And, you know, it's, it's hard to forgive, right? If people hurt you, if they don't change, they mean evil, it's hard to forgive, right? And I know there's personal examples that come to mind, you know, even when I say this. Um, and that's kind of what we have to understand. With God, it's kind of like the same thing. It's not like he's just like, oh, I forgive you so easily. No, forgiveness came with a cost. And that's what we have to understand. Forgiveness, as marvelous and as glorious, as beautiful as it is, it's costly. It's difficult. It's hard. 
And of course, you know, God is very eager and pleased to forgive us, but we have to understand that forgiveness isn't as simple or as easy or as pain-free as we think it is. Right? It comes with a great price. Um, do you know that it's very possible for God to forgive you and discipline you? Have you ever thought of that? Right? God can forgive your sins, but he can discipline you simultaneously. Right? And this is what we have to understand about discipline. God disciplining us is not an act of hate. Right? God disciplining us for our sins is not an act of judgment or punishment, but rather <clears throat> it's an act of love. Right? Because if God really were to punish us for our sins, the equal punishment is death. And, you know, like, there's many times, right, in our lives where we kind of see, like, oh, God is, like, disciplining me. Oh, there's some rough patches in life, right? Um, like, I'm learning this difficult lesson. And a lot of times, um, this is, I'm just speaking from personal, uh, um, my, my own uh, perspective, but a lot of times I just feel like, dude, God, you hate me. Like, why are you making discipline so hard for me? Um, why is life so difficult? But I realized that it's out of love. So what I want to say is just two quick things. Okay, number one, forgiven sins have disciplinary consequences. That's our first point, okay? Forgiven sins have disciplinary consequences. And I have to distinguish that disciplinary consequences is not the same as punishment. They're two different things. So how do we see this in the text, right? Um, David's sin has some consequences, right? Uh, Nathan says, right, um, inspired by God, that the sword will never depart from your house. Now, what does that mean, right? <clears throat> Since David used the sword against Uriah, David will have to go through the painful experience of witnessing his own son's dying. So if you read on through Second uh, Samuel, uh, four of David's sons die prematurely, right? There's a son by the name of Absalom, right? He deliberately tries to kill his own father, David, right? And David's close advisor kills him, right? Another thing that God says, he's, he says to David that, I'm going to take your wives to be given to your neighbors. And, you know, David's sexual sin against another would give rise to sexual sins committed by another against David, Right? And the most obvious consequence that we see in this passage for David's sin is that his child dies, right? There's a clear distinction between retribution and discipline. And the goal of punishment, right, the goal of judgment is to make things even, right? Um, it's eye for an eye, right? If, if like, like the Godfather, right? Like, if you, if you kill, like, one of my guys, I'm going to kill one of your guys, right? And this is how wars start. Um, that's what retribution is. But the goal of discipline is different because the goal of discipline is growth. Do you see that? Because retribution, judgment, that's rooted by hate. But on the other hand, discipline is rooted by love. Um, now, discipline and retribution may appear to be the same thing because both are hard, right? Both are painful. Both are negative stuff um, happening in your life. But I'm arguing that it's different because true retribution in this biblical sense means death, right? The equal cost to pay for sin is death. And if God really wanted to give retribution to all of us for our sins, he would have just sent us to hell. It's, it's, it's that simple. But 
why does God discipline us for our sins, right? What is God trying to do? And we see through this passage that discipline serves to be teaching moments, right? Think about the times where you've been disciplined by your parents, right? Weren't they teaching moments, right? You did something bad, you stole that gum, right? You hit your sibling, right? And you got disciplined. Those are teaching moments, right? Another reason why God disciplines us is because he wants to show us to not take sin so lightly, even though he lays aside punishment. Because I think this is important because I feel like in our Christian lives, a lot of times when we sin and we know there's no punishment, we think of it as it's not a big deal. But when there's punishment, we're like, oh shoot, it's a big deal. I'm getting punished for this. We have to understand that even with the absence of punishment, sin is still a big deal. Now, and this is probably what he's doing to David and probably what God has done to us as well. Um, God disciplines us to humble us and to sanctify us. And here's the truth about Christian living. Um, you don't grow through success. You don't, go th- you don't grow through um, the ease of life. How do you grow then? You, you grow through the storms, right? You, you grow through the fire. You, you grow and you learn when you go through suffering and pain, right? That's when your character is tested. Right? That's when your true colors come out. And, you know, like, failure is, I think Michael Scott said this too, like, failure is, like, one of the greatest teachers, right? And uh, we, we grow through experiencing the evil that even we have done to others. And, you know, before I move on to the last point, I just want to say this. Um, God is never angry at you. If you're a Christian, if you have faith in Jesus Christ... Right? If you believe in the gospel, God is never angry at you. God is never disappointed in you. God never looks at you and he, he's, he, he never says, you're pathetic. You're terrible. He's, and you know, like I've said this a bunch of times in the past, but he either deeply, is one of two things, okay? He either deeply rejoices in you or he is deeply concerned for you, right? Those are the two different expressions of God. He's never angry at you. He never, like, wants to give you punishment, right? He never thinks evil towards you. But rather, um, if we're in sin, if we're, like, screwing up, if we're struggling, God is deeply concerned for us, right? Kind of like a parent would be concerned for uh, a two-year-old trying to put a fork through an outlet, right? Genuine concern. And I feel like we have to like hear that because a lot of times when we sin and after, our, after we sin or after we make a mistake or just randomly when bad things are happening in our lives, we just seem like, oh, shoot, God is angry at us. God is upset at me. God is not pleased with me. But that's not the case because Romans 8.1 says what? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means there's no punishment, no anger, no retribution, no judgment because Jesus already covered you. And this is the only application I have for today. Um, Accept God's discipline as his love and care for you. Accept God's discipline as his love and care for you. Now, I know this is hard um, because whenever I receive discipline from, like, my dad, I'm just like, you hate me, (laughs) right? Why are you, like, you know, being unloving towards me? Um, But deep down inside, our parents discipline us because... They want us to learn. They want us to grow. And that's rooted in love. 
And likewise, when you guys become parents in the near future, you're going to discipline your kids as well because you love them. Here's the last point, and this is going to be quick, guys. Forgiven sins can always be redeemed. Right? So the first point was forgiven sins have disciplinary consequences. The last point today is forgiven sins can always be redeemed. How do we see this in the text? Well, again, David should have died. Like, if this story was written properly, right, following the law, David should have died. Right? His violation warranted death, like, three times over. True justice in this story means that David, even as a king, even as God's representative, should have died like Saul. But God spared his life. And also, even though the first son died, God loved the second son, which is weird, right? God loved Solomon. And if you think about it, the reason why this is so weird is because God shouldn't have loved Solomon. Why? Because this baby came out of an adulterous relationship. This baby came out of sin. So what God really should have done is put an end to that family line stemming from David and Bathsheba. But guess what? Did you know that Jesus, right, our Lord and Savior, comes from the family line of David and Bathsheba? Right? So David and Bathsheba, they fathered Solomon, and Jesus came through that descendant, or or he was a descendant of that line. Now, if we look at what God is doing from a bird's eye view, we see that God is doing whatever it takes to love, to heal, to redeem man from sin. As crazy as this text is, right? There's so much grace in this text. Right? Even God putting David's sins to light, even exposing his sin is an act of grace because God could have just been like, forget it. I'm not even going to like spend my time on this. God loved David so much that he didn't want to leave him in his sin. And maybe that's the same case for us. God loves you so much that he doesn't want you to stay in your sin because he knows that that's a crappy life to live. And what he wants to do is to rescue you, to heal you, and to bring you out of that. God has such a heart for messed up wretches. God loves us. God loves you and I as busted as we are, as tainted as we are, as ugly as we are. And and church, I say to all of us, all of your sins can be redeemed. All of it, if you have faith. You look at the life of Jacob, right? Who, Who was known to be a deceiver, who cheated his brother, who cheated a lot of other people. Um, his sins were redeemed as well, through faith. You look at Rahab, the prostitute, right? Her sins were redeemed by faith. You look at Zacchaeus, right, the tax collector when uh, during Jesus' time. Even though tax collectors, they cheated, right, they stole money, he was redeemed by faith. You look at Peter, who actually betrayed Jesus three times, he was restored. He was re- redeemed by faith. Paul, the persecutor of the church, right, who, who killed people, who, who dragged many people into jails <coughs> because of their faith, his sins were redeemed through faith as well. And this is why like, we celebrate the gospel. You are never too far from the love of God. Um, no sin is too large. No sin is too terrible for the forgiveness and the grace of God to cover over. There is no sin that you committed that is too dirty or too unclean for God to wash away with the blood of Christ. 
And church, it is my dream and my hope for you to believe in this truth that God went through extreme lengths to show you his love. So if there's ever a moment where you doubt God's love for you, um, then that's a lie. We see, and you know, going back to this whole confession, assurance, substitute thing. Um, confession, right? If we confess our sins and put our faith in Jesus' righteousness, right? If we accept that we're unable to do good and um, we desperately need Jesus to cover us, there is an assurance after confession. The assurance is this, after we confess our sins, that God gives us the assurance that we will not face the wrath nor the punishment, nor the punishment for sin, and in addition to that, God also promises that one day he will put an end to all sin and all wrongdoing. How? How can he do that? Because there's a substitute. You see that? Confession, right? Assurance and substitute. Because a thousand years later after this story takes place, right? A thousand years after this innocent baby died as a substitute because of David's sin, um, Jesus, who was completely innocent, took on the sins of man, and he was slaughtered like a lamb, right? He died an unjust death. And church, this is what we're all about here. You know, this is why we sing. This is why we meet. To remember the fact that God's love is so great to cover over all of our sins. Um, and I want to encourage you, church, um, you know, trust in the love of God. Confess your sins. And, you know, let's even share that to, like, our community around us. Let's pray together. Um, God, I thank you for your word. Um, I thank you for the fact that you're extremely gracious and you forgive and you constantly show us love and grace. And God, my prayer is that um, we wouldn't take sin so lightly. I, um, God, our prayer is that you would help us to see that sin is very weighty. It's heavy. Um, but God, that we would also see in light of that, that your grace is larger. Your love is greater. And I pray that that would give us the confidence to trust in you and to believe in the gospel. Um, be with us. Be with the church. Bless us and grow us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.